Lord, in these next few minutes, we just want to enjoy you. Lord, I pray for a divine uh, engagement where your people, through the work of the Spirit, are able to tune out every distraction, even people that are here for the first time. Tune out the novelty, the different setting, new voice, maybe different layout, format. Lord, I just pray that your people will just be so available this morning, that we will just engage a sweet word. Lord, we recognize that it's your word that's life-giving, and uh, we just pray that you'll see a bunch of hungry livers this morning, and that we will just be living all there, enjoyifying you, happified in you, captivated with you, amazed with grace, scandalized by a gospel that we don't rate. Lord, I pray that what that will make is this morning a bunch of people that are just humble and teachable and lowly and (coughs) eager. Lord, I pray that you'll guard me from speaking or even thinking anything that's not true, Lord. These next few minutes, I just pray for um, clarity in the truth, just for every word to be guarded, every word to be um, something that you would approve of that's from you. Lord, also this morning, I want to pray for uh, Ralph Powell and Fellowship Bible Church. Lord, we thank you so much for the sweet shared ministry that we have in this community. And pray for Ralph specifically with his new wife. And now even as of a little, little over a week ago, a new step-granddaughter. And um, not step, daughter-in-law, granddaughter-in-law. Lord, we uh, just celebrate that with him, and um, Lord, I pray that you will just find us walking in agreement with this people. Uh, You'll just guard our hearts from ever having a spirit of competition with another Christ-adoring church in this community, Lord. Guard us from ever being about our um, efforts alone, but Lord, we pray that we'll be burdened for the other churches in this community. Lord, we turn this time over to you for your glory. Christ's name we pray. Amen. Step granddaughter. I don't know where that came from. <laughs> I want to encourage you this morning. We're going to climb into the message here in a moment. <clears throat> I come up here on Saturdays, and I spend some time with the Lord, and uh, had a sweet time with Him yesterday in preparation for this sermon, and uh, one of the things that I, I felt like the Lord was really impressing upon me is an encouragement to you to enjoy the deep things of Christ, and the deep things of the Word, and the deep truths. I was thinking about last week, an hour and ten minute sermon <laughs> that had our little ones in here with us. I mean, this people was just like, mmm, it's all there. And I heard from people that just engaged it and who've listened to it over the course of the week, and I'm just amazed by the hunger and the desire of God's people for the deep things. And I just encourage you, I, I think, you know, sometimes I almost feel a little bit uh, concerned about, man, is this too thick, is this too much, too rich, too deep for God's people 
You know, you kind of have this mindset, let me shoot for the average journey, the average Christian. And uh, I think, I feel like the Lord just keeps reminding me, he says, you know, I don't hear him audibly, but this impression from him that says, keep digging, because it creates saints, it creates martyrs, it creates people that will go to the far corners, it creates people that will go to their cubicle next door, or their neighbor next door, or go to their backyard and engage their neighbor. It creates men that will engage their children and lead their families in the Lord. And I find that it's the deep things, I believe, that get you through things like cancer, that get you through things like job loss, through pain, suffering. I find that it's the deep things that get you through that. The Tic Tacs don't just don't, don't do it. They just don't get you through that kind of stuff. But it's the deep things that actually fuel us to actually being overcomers. And last week was one of those deep things. There were a lot of new words, a lot of new parking places for new thoughts. That's the way I introduced it last week. Don't be afraid of a new word. It's just simply a place to park a new thought. And uh, you may hear some new words again this morning. It's a new language. You wouldn't learn these sort of words in grade school. You know, or, or watching TV. You're not going, it's, it's a language of people. So be okay with learning new things. In fact, we, that'll, be, that'll characterize the people of faith. Man, show me the new rich truths of the Word. This is a big old Bible. If you think you got it figured out, man, the more I study, the more I realize I've got left to learn. So I encourage you to enjoy the deep things. Last week, <clears throat> we, we started with this pole, this totem pole that I found behind the Ott's house. He's not even in here to defend himself this morning. He's taking care of kids. We can really beat him up. Found it in the woods behind the Ott's house. And, uh, actually, we began with this totem pole last week as kind of a visual to help us understand how God interacts with creation. That first of all, this picture as it sits right here is the picture of kind of the ancient uh, religions that used a totem pole to visualize their understanding of God and stuff and creation and religion. And this totem pole kind of represents a God up here. This is a God. He's got a little green crown on. And then this right here is man. And then this right here is critter. Down below that, and it's not really pictured, would be demons and kind of the unseen sort of creatures that are out there. You may recognize on the totem pole that they kind of have, a lot of times they have a winged creature up top. That's their understanding of God. What we considered last week is that that's a picture of pantheism, where God's in everything. Essentially, there's a spark of divinity in man. Because man is really just a little bit lower than deity, a little bit less divine than God, and he's a little bit more refined than critters. <laughs> and we consider last week, all that is, is that's pantheism. And what that is, is that's thinking that God is on our continuum, that God created us as an emanation from himself, and that we're just kind of a lower form of him. And that with that spark of divinity in us, that maybe with enough legislation and enough... Um, education, that maybe we can become him. <laughs> That'd be cool. That's pantheism. But that's not our God. And then we considered deism. Deism ha has God not on the pole with us. God puts everything in motion. He creates everything. But then, he, it's like him spinning a top. He puts it into motion. Or him winding a clock he just sets it there to just tick away until the ozone layer is penetrated or something. A meteor hits us. 
I don't know. But he's gone. Once he spins the top or winds the clock, he takes off. In fact, he goes on vacation. He's in Hawaii tanning. So that's where we put him right there. Okay, he's tanning. That's the God of deism. That's not our God either. Okay, our God is not on the pole like the God of deism. But our God is involved with creation. Our God can't even be represented. That's why this thing, last week I wanted to throw it out the door. But we'll just imagine that this just doesn't even exist. That this might in some way kind of capture creation. That this pole represents creation. And man is at the top of that creation. I hope we would all agree with that. But God not being on the pole was where we landed yesterday. He's not even on the pole. (laughs) He's transcendent. And that doesn't mean distant like in Hawaii, tanning. It means he's transcendent, he's distinct. That he created us not from himself as an emanation of his own essence. He created us in his image, but not of his own essence. We're not on the same pole. In fact, he's not even on a pole. So that's where we went last week, and we considered that we got to establish those sort of things before we can realize and understand the gravity of what used to be yawn-inducing for me, a word called covenant. Oh, Teaching and preaching growing up, although I didn't hear it a whole lot, the word covenant. When I did hear it, I'd start yawning. It was amazing. Who needs sleeping pills? Just say covenant. I go to sleep. What we realized last week is that covenant is not yawn-inducing because when you realize that this transcendent and distinct, not distant God, is very involved in creation and you realize the way that He's involved is through covenant. Since the very beginning, there's been one covenant after another where God has engaged creation. I was kind of thinking of them as almost kind of the high water marks where God has interacted with creation. The first one being the Adamic covenant. Remember, it's just placed apart. Having to do with Adam, Adamic. Then there was the Noahic or Noahic. There's the Abrahamic. And there's the Mosaic. There's another one in there that we didn't deal with last week. The Davidic. And then the one that we're embedded within right now. The one that we're enjoying. The sweet, sublime, superior, superlative covenant called the New Covenant in the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the covenant that we're in right now. We considered these last week as some, in some ways sort of contact points between this transcendent God and all of creation through covenant. I was thinking about <laughs> covenant is so important when you begin to engage these sort of things, yet it is so neglected. Yet we're surrounded with pictures of covenant. We're surrounded with things that should help us appreciate what covenant is. But the problem is when we don't get covenant, then church, being embedded within this new covenant, church can just become an activity. That's the paradigm that we live in, folks, here in Greenville. Church is activity. It's a place you go and a thing you do. And I feel like if, God, if, if somebody asked me, what has God called you to Greenville for? What is the character of your ministry? I feel like the character of my personal ministry, and the elders have come alongside in this too, is to chip away, nick at, fracture, kick, poke that ugly paradigm of church's activity and start to hopefully, through the exposition of the word, build a church's identity picture. And covenant does that. 
When you don't understand covenant, you don't appreciate it, you've never even thought about it, then church can be an activity. and can be a place you go and a thing you do. It's just a nice Sunday activity that will improve the activities of the rest of the week. It's just a quality of life thing. Man, it's in my day timer. I'm going to give it some space. But hopefully it's just going to kind of make for an improved quality of life and hopefully get me through Saturday to where I can come in there again on the next Sunday and get a little bit more just to get me through the week. Let me show you a picture of covenant that we see surrounding us that may be sitting right next to you that will help you appreciate the gravity of covenant. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Now let me tell you too, we're going to go all over our Bibles this morning. We do most mornings, but if you're here for the first time, this just a heads up for you. And what I'm going to do is, if you don't have a Bible or if you're not real familiar with the layout of your own Bible, I'll give you page numbers of the Bible that's in the pew back in front of you, that blue one. Or if you have the English, English Standard Version, that page number will likely work too. So Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31. This is on page 979. Paul is talking about house rules. This is where we're going next week. But he's talking about the relationship between husband and wife, and then he says, oh, well, really, I'm talking about Christ in the church. But then he busts off in something that was actually in Genesis. And he says these words, he says, therefore, he writes these words, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. That's the picture of covenant and the gravity of covenant. I don't know if there's a stronger bond in the world than the bond between parent and child. <laughs> I mean, think about it. Is there anything you wouldn't do for your kid? You jump in front of a car to pick him up, move him out of the way, get hit by the car, I mean, you would do whatever it takes for your child. You'd give them a lung. There's an incredible bond between parent-child, especially mother-child. But when a young man and a young woman come into covenant of marriage, that incredibly strong blood bond is broken as they leave and they cleave and they engage each other in a whole new union. Covenant is that powerful covenant is that thick covenant is that strong some of you may be familiar with christ's words and speaking of the cost of discipleship and he says man if you're going to follow me you need to be willing to hate father mother brother sister you may have read that and said oh he must have had a bad day that day what did he mean by that that just sounds really strong and extreme because he tells us to love everybody too he's hate. What he's saying there is you better be willing to cleave from every physical relationship to enter into this covenant. Covenant is that thick. That's hard for us to conceptualize here in Greenville, but people on the other side of the world that Jake and Stephanie are walking with, Kazakhs, that have grown up in a Muslim family, when they turn to Christ, in many cases their family says, beat it, scram, you wicked thing. It's happening all over the world where people are coming into this new covenant and they're having to walk away from family, mother, brother, sister, father. And that's appropriate because covenant is that thick. 
So we've got to ask ourselves, just in kind of chewing on last week, and just kind of hearing what we heard already this morning, we've got to ask ourselves, is our faith worth that? Is the engagement that we have with the living God really worth that? Would I do that if it cost me everything? In a lot of the Roman Empire uh, cities and the New Testament writings, when someone turned to Christ, their family might shun them. They may lose their means of making money. <laughs> a lot of the, the enterprise had to do with uh, temple worship of wicked pagan gods. You'd have to walk away from everything. And on top of that, you may lose your life and become a human torch in the Colosseum. Or you might come lying food. That's what it might cost you. And I'm sitting there thinking, is our faith worth that? And I'm just going to say, if church is just an activity, I'm saying no way, man. No, man, my faith ain't worth that if it's just an activity. It would be like someone asking me to walk away from family or to be willing to become a human torch or to be lion food for bowling. What? It's just bowling. Or, hey, I'm going to tell you what, I love hunting and fishing. But even hunting, fishing. Are you willing to, weigh, willing to walk away from family and life and become lion food for bowling and hunting and fishing? But the reality is this new covenant that we're walking in, when you begin to see covenant, it begins to take shape, and you begin to realize the gravity of this transcendent, distinct God engaging creation through covenant and this new covenant of the blood of Christ being the thing that where we engage God, then you just go, so yeah, man, I'll walk away from family. I'll walk away from job. I'll, walk, I'll even put my life on the line. That's faith. I don't know what the other thing is. I realize as we engage truths like this that, man, there's just the potential to say, man, it just seems so extreme. <laughs> I've been going to church my whole life. I never really heard anything that extreme. I just I don't know if I like the sound of that. It seems kind of fanatical almost. And I, it, it takes me back to, here's, here's a question, a, a thought that I, I uh, something that I read in a book this week. It was a, a book about Jonathan Edwards. And they characterized this guy's thought that seemed also extreme. And his preaching and his teaching is extreme. And, and they said, well, you need to ask this question when you're considering Jonathan Edwards' teaching and preaching. If eternal bliss or eternal damnation in a literal eternity is at stake, would that kind of change the tone? Would that make it understandable how urgent this teaching or this preaching is? If a very literal eternity is at stake, either eternal bliss or eternal damnation is at stake, is it worth it? I'm going to say yeah. Even if it makes for a smaller church. Hmm. Even if it makes some of y'all this be your last Sunday, those guys are just a little bit too extreme. It's worth it because there's an eternal, a very real, literal eternity at stake. I'll tell you the passage I think about. I think about these guys that say, man, I did all kinds of things in your name, Lord. And he, and he says, and, and they could cry out, Lord, Lord. He says, I never knew you. A lot of people won't hear that. I would just want to make sure that as much as possible within me, that I don't hear it, that my family doesn't hear it, that the people that I've given, that, that God has given me stewardship of walking with, don't hear those words either. It may just be a few of us. But man, it's that urgent. And when you begin to understand the issue of covenant, 
then you begin to understand, oh yeah, church is not an activity, it's an identity. And things begin to come into view. Let's do a little quick recap of last week. The covenants that we engaged last week, the Adamic, the Noahic, or Noahic, the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, and then the New Covenant. Some of the things that they have in common. The reason you're going to need to know this, the reason we're going to refresh this, is because you can't get that in one Sunday. I've been studying this for months. And I still need to make notes. So you don't have it down. <laughs> you say, I already got this. So we heard this last week. <laughs> Baloney, that's all I got to say. We need to hear it again. And it's the escort to where we're going this morning. So that's why I want you to go on this short, brief little recap with me. The things that these covenants have in common is that God initiates as the covenanter. He's driving. God makes Adam. God speaks to Noah, says, build an ark. Noah didn't just think of that. Oh, I think I'll build an ark. He didn't know what an ark was. There weren't any boats. They didn't need them. God calls Abram. God finds Moses. He's out shepherding, trying to hide after killing somebody. He finds him and calls him. And then in the New Covenant, God sent His Son in the fullness of time, Galatians 4.4. Jesus says, I came to seek and save the lost. The lost can't find Him. The people in the pole, we can't find a transcendent God because we're stuck in the pole. (laughs) The covenanter has got to take the initiative and come get us. I come to seek and save the lost. The covenanter is driving. Secondly, he speaks light into darkness. In the obvious case, in the first case, in creation, there's darkness, and he says, let there be light. Bam, there it is. Then he speaks into the wickedness of mankind, the instructions to Noah, build an ark. He speaks into the barrenness and old age of Abram and Sarai, and says, you're going to be as numerous as the stars. He speaks light into darkness. He speaks into the darkness of Egypt with the covenant of Moses, the Mosaic covenant. And he speaks into our slavery to sin. The darkness, the same voice that said, let there be light, is the same voice that calls into your heart to give you the light of the knowledge of Christ. That's his pattern. God's the covenanter. God speaks light in the darkness. God commands. He says, okay, uh, Adam, tend to the garden and don't eat from that tree. That's true of every covenant. He gives commands. The second one to... Abram, or to Noah, he says, build an ark and gather the critters. To Abram, he says, go to a land I will show you. Command. And then to Moses, he says, a bunch of thou shalt nots. And then to us, he gives the double love command. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, everything you got. And the second's like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Every covenant has commands. Every covenant has promises and curses, or curses and blessings now, Noah, if you eat, or Adam, if you eat from that tree, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Noah, or Abram, your offspring will number as the stars. Moses, you will live long in the land I will give you. And the promises that he's made to us of blessings and cursings, the blessings that he's made to us, Jesus says, I've come that they may have life and have it abundantly. That's a promise that we can have abundant life. A promise that we can have a peace that passes understanding. A promise that we will know the truth and the truth will set us free. Promises in the new covenant. 
He gives a cultural mandate. Be fruitful and multiply. We heard it in at least two of those covenants. In the first, to Adam. In the second, to Noah. He restates it. And then to Abram, he says, you're going to be as numerous as the stars. Our version of the cultural mandate is, go ye therefore into all the world, making disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and lo, I'll be with you always. That's our cultural mandate. It's true in every case. And there's a sign, a sign in the Adamic covenant. Well, he says there will be heavenly lights, and they will be a sign for you. Psalm 19 says, The heavens above declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech. Night to night declares knowledge. (laughs) There's a sign, all right. It's the same sign that He pointed Abram to. He said, look up. Remember that I made all this. It's a sign of my first covenant. The sign in the second covenant with Noah is a relaxed bow that's pointed away from the earth, thankfully. That's pointed away from the earth. The sign of the Abrahamic covenant was snip, snip, circumcision. The sign of the Mosaic covenant is the very law itself. It says, hang it on your forehead or put it on your forehead, put it on your doorposts. The Jews took it literally. But the law itself would be a sign. And the sign for us in the new covenant, we actually took into our bellies last week. The Lord's Supper itself is a sign of the new covenant. And there's sacrifice in every case. In the Adamic covenant, the sacrifice was that first critter that had to die to provide a skin. An innocent critter, mind you, dies to provide a skin to cover the, the guilt and shame of Adam and Eve. There's sacrifice in every case. What did Noah do the first moment he got off the ark? Man, he built him an altar. Let's do some sacrificing. It's appropriate in this covenant. Abraham had sacrifices. We looked at last week. There were three-year-olds getting sacrificed all over the place. And then you know the story, obviously, of Abraham's son, Isaac. Then in the Mosaic covenant, there's the Passover lamb. And then there's the whole book of Leviticus where there's sacrifice all over the place. And then in the New Covenant, there's one sacrifice. It's the final sacrifice. It's the superlative, sublime, superior sacrifice. And that is our Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. It's true in every case. Sacrifice. And then lastly, the things that they had in common was they each had a mediator. Capital M, mediator. The mediator in the first covenant was Adam. The mediator in the second covenant was Noah. The capital M mediator in the third covenant was Abram, later Abraham. The mediator in the next covenant is a man named Moses. And of course, the final, superior, sublime, superlative mediator of the new covenant is our shared Lord, our Christ. Now, I'm going to take you to Deuteronomy chapter 1. We're going to talk about this picture of mediation today and representation. Deuteronomy chapter 1 is an appropriate place for us to go. The book of Deuteronomy itself, the whole book is a, is a covenant. It's the Mosaic covenant. And listen how this thing begins in Deuteronomy chapter 1. It's a picture of transcendence right off the bat. Just so you know, it's not something I'm making up. Something you can see in action. Here's a picture of transcendence. 
in verse 3 of chapter 1. In the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses spoke to the people of Israel a word that he made up. I didn't say that. Moses didn't have his own knowledge that he could share with people. If he had a spark of divinity in him, then he could have come up with something for the rest of everybody else in the poll. But Moses didn't have a word that he could share with everybody in the poll. Something had to come to him from a divine resource. And it's right here. Moses spoke to the people of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him in commandment to them. That's the picture of transcendence. Moses needed a word that's outside of himself from a transcendent, distinct, not distant God. And God gave him covenant. A word outside of himself. And then... He uses, in this case, he uses Moses as a mediator. Let me talk about mediation for a moment before we continue. The more and more I think about mediation, I think about this mediator, our Christ. The more and more I realize is that the miracle of the virgin birth is not the miracle to really be amazed at. The miracle of the virgin birth is that a transcendent God, God the Son, climbed into the pole. The miracle is not that Jesus walked on the water. The miracle is that Jesus got into the boat. The miracle is that a transcendent God took on flesh and climbed into the pole and became a mediator. And then the miracle even beyond that that he took on flesh is what he did once he got into the pole. Keep your finger in Deuteronomy because we're going to come right back to it and turn over to the book of Hebrews. On page 1005. I told you I was going to give you page numbers. Remember, in each of these covenants, there were mediators. Moses is the mediator of this Mosaic covenant. Christ is the mediator in the new covenant. We're considering Christ just for a few minutes, then we're going to go back to this picture of Moses. I want you to appreciate that we can't just continue on and just mention Christ as mediator because the miracle that This transcendent God stepped into this pole is something worth considering. And then the miracle of what he did once he was in the pole. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6 says, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it's enacted on better promises. He's speaking of the new covenant there. And Christ is the mediator of that new covenant. Look at chapter 9, verse 15. Listen to this. Therefore, our Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Basically, that's saying if you've fallen next to the law, which no one's perfect, all, all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. We've all fallen in regards to that old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the law. And those sins are covered up through this death. And in verse 16 it says, where a will is involved, many of you have written a will, many of you may be written into a will as going to receive something. For where a will is involved, you know that something's got to take place before that will goes into motion. A death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. 
Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the, both the tent and the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. So basically, the picture there is that this new covenant is like his will. It's like God wrote this. God the Son is written into this will as the subjects of this will, and he had to die for it to go into motion. The miracle is that he stepped into the pole, and then that he died for this creation that's in the pole. This transcendent God did that. God stepped into the pole and became both the final sacrifice and in some weird way he became the rich uncle that's written you into his will. You show up for the reading of the will and you find out you've inherited everything. You're like, that's a scandal. That's our story. We inherited something that we didn't deserve and that's the story of this new covenant. I just want to take a few minutes to just ask you to consider and appreciate the value of that. That a transcendent God took on flesh and climbed into the pole. And that a transcendent God, God the Son, died in the pole at the hands of others in the pole. And so that we could inherit the riches of a will. It just makes me amazed where we are in redemptive history that we're walking in this new covenant. I'm thankful for the old covenants. But the new covenant is sublime. The fact that we're embedded within it. I hear that ugly paradigm of church as activity being fractured. I hear that ugly paradigm, lame paradigm of a weak gospel being fractured and chipped away when you begin to see yourself embedded within a new covenant where a transcendent God took on flesh and died so that you might inherit. That's the covenant that we're walking in. Now, go back to Deuteronomy. <clears throat> While God used capital M mediators in every case, we just took a few minutes just to step away and consider what Christ did. While God used capital M mediators in each of these cases, Adam, uh, Noah, Abram, Moses, Christ. While he used those capital M mediators in every case, he's also used what I'm going to call lowercase m mediators. Look at this picture in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 9. It says, At that time I said to you, this is God speaking to Moses. He says, I'm, or is Moses actually speaking to the people? He says, I'm not able to bear you by myself. The Lord your God has multiplied you, and behold, you are today as numerous as the stars of heaven. Sure enough, he promised it. It says, May the Lord, the God of your fathers, make you a thousand times as many as you are and bless you as he has promised you. How can I bear by myself the weight and burden of you and your strife? Choose for your, for your tribes wise, understanding, and experienced men. And I will appoint them as your heads. And you answered me, the thing that you've spoken is good for us to do. So I took the heads of your tribes, wise and experienced men, and I set them as heads over you, commanders of thousands, commanders of hundreds, commanders of fifties, commanders of tens, and officers throughout your tribes. And I charged your judges, these guys, these wise and experienced men, at that time, hear the cases between your brothers 
and judge righteously between a man and his brother or the alien who is with him. Here in the Mosaic Covenant, this high watermark where God is engaging creation, where in fact He's engaging this people that He created, that He gave life to. Here in this Mosaic Covenant, God is dealing with the people, these multifamilies, these tribes, these larger groups of people, and His design is to establish lowercase mediators to oversee and administer the covenant to the people. That's these guys that are in charge of thousands, hundreds, and tens. They're lowercase mediators. Moses is still the capital M mediator of that covenant. But he's got a bunch of lowercase mediators to help him administer that covenant and see that covenant through. He's employing a host of wise and experienced and understanding men to lead and judge and administer the covenant to God's people. Now, you might be at this point thinking, okay, I'm seeing that, I appreciate that, but what does this have to do with us? Where are we going? I know you're kind of leading us somewhere, so where are we going? I'm going to show you where we're going. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. I'll give you page number when I get there. Page 992. What does this have to do with us? Because we're not in the Mosaic Covenant. We're in the New Covenant. And you remember these covenants all have a lot in common. They all have some similarities. And just like the Mosaic Covenant has these lowercase mediators to help the uppercase mediator see the covenant through, so the New Covenant also has lowercase mediators to help see the New Covenant through. Let me show this to you. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. It says, This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer... What's an overseer? You're looking at one. We've got three other overseers at Crosspoint. We've got two at C3, the church we started in commerce. A point, or if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Listen, he says, Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, quarrelsome, not a lover of money. What I'm hearing right there is wise and understanding. <laughs> Lowercase m, mediator. Right there. You got four of them right here. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. Christy and I just got that down. I want you to know that. We got our children all under control. No problem there. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert. You remember he said one of the qualifications for those, those lowercase mediators in the, in the Mosaic Covenant was that they were experienced. He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Here's a couple other passages. 2 Timothy chapter 2, just a couple pages over. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. (laughs) I'm working on that. God's not done with me yet. Any of, any of you have ever snapped that? Must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. Able to teach. Patiently enduring evil. Mm, that's a hard one. Oh, I want to rip people's heads off sometimes. 
I want to rip my own head off sometimes. Patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. There's another really hard one. But that's characteristic of this lowercase mediator that's in your midst. See, what we've done is last week we looked at this huge macro view of this God interacting with His creation over the ages and how He's done it through these high watermarks, these intersecting points of covenant, this big macro view. And I hope you appreciate that what we're doing now this week is we're kind of looking not quite yet at a micro, but somewhere in between. A media crow. I don't have to make up a new word. Not macro. Not micro, because that's where we're going next week. Into your homes. This week, we're looking at the intermediate step into our church. And we're understanding how God interacts with His people. Look at Titus chapter 1, verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town. Notice that it says plural, elders in every town. It doesn't say an elder in every town. So if you ever wonder why we have a plurality of elders here at Crosspoint, Because there's beauty and plurality. (laughs) There's wisdom between the four of us that no one of us has by himself. He says, appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, here's the characteristics of these lowercase mediators. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, has, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Those are characteristics of the lowercase mediators that you have at your local church, hopefully. Hopefully it's wise and experienced and understanding men. Turn to Acts chapter 20. As you're turning there, I'll tell you too. You know, sometimes you might think about preaching a sermon like this if you're having problems, like people aren't following you. (laughs) And you're having a problem with people not kind of taking your lead. This isn't a reactive sermon. There's not like this, this... section of cross point that's defying elder leadership right now or anything you're going to appreciate next week what we're doing today because next week when we're going to engage home all of what we're talking about today is going to be very familiar to you you're going to look around and go well oh yeah okay this is making sense in a way like it never has before acts 20 28 and page 930 is a picture of elder leadership An elder is to pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Do you hear those commanders of thousands, over hundreds, over tens, those officials? That's what these are. It's the same sort of picture. Carry out oversight over the flock. Care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. Turn to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. The character of that relationship between the leader and between the people is captured in this verse. Hebrews, this is on page 1010. It says, obey your leaders, insert elders. You could also insert shepherds. You could also insert Daddies, 
for you single moms, you can insert mommy in there. Obey your leaders and submit to them for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. So it's God's design to interact with creation through covenant. And at least in the Mosaic covenant and the new covenant, it's God's design to set up lowercase mediators as as well. And it's God's design for his people to obey. That's right. Obey. I know it's uncultural for someone to say obey the leadership of this church but it's right there whatever the cost we're going to preach it and believe it and do it it may make for a smaller church but remember what's at stake eternal bliss or eternal damnation is at stake and there it is obey the leadership of the local church now turn to first timothy this will be an encouragement to you first timothy Chapter 5, verse 17. In case you're thinking, man, this guy is really kind of setting himself up to be obeyed, just to kind of create a bunch of yes people, you know, and he's untouchable. This should be an encouragement to you as you're hearing the charge from God, obey your leaders. As you're seeing God's design of how he's interacting with his creation through covenant, and he set up these lowercase mediators called elders, overseers. Listen to this passage. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Now listen. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. What that implies is that you can bring a charge against an elder. You just need some witnesses. You can't just trump something up on your own. But it means that elders are accountable to the body. (laughs) Be encouraged. You're not going to have a tyrant. You can't. According to God's design, you can't. He says, as for those, those elders who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. Yeah. So it's not a tyranny. In fact, we are accountable to you. This God-ordained mediator system, these mediators are answerable to you and the Lord. That should be an encouragement to you. I know how hard it is to follow somebody. Even as a Marine, spent almost six years as a Marine, led Marines in infantry over that period of time. But in the Marine setting, as you would imagine, you may be in charge of some people, but someone's also in charge of you. And I was not easily leadable. It's interesting sometimes that the guys that are the most capable leaders are the most difficult to lead. And it's when those that's harnessed, when that most capable leader can become leadable, that something really awesome takes place. But I want you to know, I understand how hard it is to follow somebody. And in the church, listen, here's some of the thoughts I've had over the years. It's tough sometimes to follow pastoral leadership because there's something within me over the years where I had what people would consider as a normal job, where I'm thinking, that joker doesn't even work. I'm supposed to follow him? That guy doesn't even really work. And then there's times where I've thought, well... This guy wants me to follow him, but he doesn't really have any say-so over me. Not like my boss. Now, my boss has say-so. 
because he can fire me or he can promote me or my family has to say so because they can shun me or treat me mean or treat me nice or give me a great Christmas gift or not. <laughs> Those are thoughts that I'm confessing that I've had over the years. That joker doesn't even work. Or that guy doesn't have any say so over me. Why should I follow him? Those things make it difficult to lead and difficult to follow. And here's something else that makes it difficult to lead and difficult to follow for the local elder that's in the or body of elders in the local church is that in many cases, the elders aren't leading anybody anywhere. <laughs> it's hard to follow somebody that's not going anywhere. Now, I'm being critical against my own ministry at times where my ministry at times has looked a whole lot more like a chaplain ministry than an elder leading people in a direction sort of ministry. While I have great affection for chaplains. My granddaddy was a chaplain. While I have great affection for chaplains, that's not the ministry solely of the elder, that lowercase mediator in this covenant. This lowercase mediator is leading someone somewhere. Remember those commercials where it shows somebody that's fallen and they've got a little button on their, around their neck and they can, help, I've fallen and I can't get up. I got, in, in our context, there's a button right next to it. Help, pastor, I'm in trouble and I can't get up. Get your sorry behind over here. <laughs> You're my chaplain. And the problem is a lot of elder ministries can move, pastoral ministries can move in the direction and be consumed by that. And a lot of pastors love that because they can be codependent in that. They can spend all their time not leading their people in a direction, but just maintaining life, just dealing with the problems of life. Like a good chaplain. But as you connect covenant with God's design of lowercase mediators leading his people, then you begin to see that this guy that you think doesn't even really work, you begin to appreciate that this guy is, according to my Bible, agonizing over your soul. This guy's laboring over the word. That word for labor is the word copiazzo. You ever hear everybody say, babe, you better take some copious notes on this. That means careful, intense, laborsome notes. That's the character of the elder ministry. Copiazzo. Here's some other words, some Greek words that go along with the elder ministry. Agonizomai. That sound familiar? Agonize. That joker doesn't even work. Baloney. Copiazzo. Agonizomai. Here's another Greek word. Gumnazo. That's where we get the word gem. Humble might be sitting around with a Bible in his lap, but his soul is doing gymnastics over you. That's the proper character of the lowercase mediator. Copiazzo. Gumnazo. Agonizomai. This joker doesn't even work. Is off base. And I'll tell you something else. This guy that these elders that you think have no say-so over you? Turn to Matthew 18. Man, we don't beat this drum much. In fact, I don't know that we've ever beat it. It's not a drum. It's just the truth. I see kind of a, a representation kind of a manifestation of the way people, even Christ-adoring people, can treat the leadership of the local church in the way our children's ministry works. 
Because here's what happens sometimes, often, even in what I believe to be a Christ-adoring church. Somebody signed up to take care of some kids or somebody signed up to committed to teach or someone is committed to do something in the ministry of Crosspoint. They're like, man, that ain't no big deal. I'm just not going to show. When you wouldn't do that for work. You think your boss has more say-so in you than the local church. That's, that's our cultural norm. But here's the reality. Listen to this. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15 on page 823. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Okay, just envision you and maybe the person you're sitting next to. Hey, man, you kind of messed up. You kind of did something wrong or you're living in sin. Let me talk to you about that. If your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he doesn't listen to you, it goes to a whole nother level. Right there, he says, Take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen to them, it goes to a whole nother level. Tell it to the church. That's where these issues come before the elders right here, these lowercase mediators, these guys that we think don't even work, these guys that we think they don't have any say-so over me. My boss got say-so. But that joker, he doesn't even work. He says, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. He's talking to future apostles there. He's talking to disciples, soon to be apostles, which is really just kind of an early version of these little lowercase mediators. He said, man, what you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. What you bind on earth will be bind in heaven. And you know, heaven's eternal. My job might last for 20 or 30 years. So while my boss may have say so in me for 20 or 30 years, it sounds like the leadership of the local church has a much more powerful insight and involvement in my future Man, I know some of y'all might be turned off by that. Like, man, this joker, he just, he just, man, he, he must be having some leadership problems, having to beat that over people's head. Look here. I'm engaging, we're engaging this because you're, like I said, you're going to understand it next week when we talk about the home and we talk about the lowercase mediators in the home. This is God's design. Then there was that reality that we considered where nobody's really leading anybody anywhere. Elders or pastors that are just uh, chaplains. Nice, thankful. I'm thankful for chaplains. Don't hear me in saying that chaplain ministry is not important. It's very important. But there's a problem when that's all it is. When you roll in covenant, then you begin to appreciate that the preaching of the word isn't parallel to the journey of faith. (laughs) It is fuel for the journey of faith. It is the compass for the journey. It's not this parallel thing that if you're having a bad week, I think I'll go in there and listen to a sermon. Maybe it'll pick me up. (sighs) That's not what the preaching of the word does. It's not an activity that gets us through the week while we're busy in the name of Jesus in a bunch of programs or busy in the name of Jesus with just general life. I think I'll maybe just kind of go tap into one of these sermons. Maybe that will help me. 
The preaching of the word is the explosive force behind the creating and the shaping and the growing of a people in worship and wonder, period. Now I realize right there too, you might be like, man, this guy's trying to kind of reinforce his preaching ministry. He wants it by ear on Sunday mornings, even when the time changes. Let me show you I'm not making that up. Turn to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. Man, this passage will just blow your mind. It will change the way you think about preaching if you're listening. It's on page 1014. 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 22. Listen to this. This is just incredible to me. This is such an encouragement to me in preaching. It says, having purified your souls by, by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Okay, it's encouragement to be brotherly, loving toward each other. Okay, cool. Listen, what else he said? He says, do this since you have been born again. Okay, man, we hope we've got a genuine faith. We hope we're not going to hear, I never knew you. Since you're walking in a genuine faith, not of perishable seed, you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Now jump down to the bottom of verse 25. You've been born again through this this perishable seed, but not of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. (laughs) So it's the preached word that gives life. It's not parallel to the life of the church. It is the fuel and the compass for the life of the church. It is the life-giving means of grace that God has given to His people. I want you to know that I don't see Sunday morning preaching as optional. Now, Christy and I may travel. A few weeks ago, I was sick, laid up. But guess what I was doing on Monday? Well, it's probably Tuesday by the time I could really do it. I wanted to hear what Steve Mayo preached because it wasn't about Steve. It was about God's message for his people. I want to know what God had to say to Crosspoint that Sunday. That's why I'm charging you. If you miss a Sunday, if you miss a part of the journey, you might be lost. you got to engage it. It's not self-aggrandizing. I don't care about me. If Brad preaches, I want to hear what God has to say to God's people. If Steve preaches, what did God have to say? I want to go engage it. Because that's life-giving seed. That's why some of the people that are traveling a lot or some of the people that are missing a lot, I am begging you to engage this word and not just maybe open your Bible and I think I'm trying to get some spiritual nourishment, you know. I don't have time to commit an hour, so I'll just kind of read a couple verses. <gasps> You're going to be lost. It also won't suffice to listen to somebody else's message. That's another people. Man, I like this guy. He's a great preacher. I think I'm going to listen to him instead. You know, because Ben, he preached a long time. This guy preached about 30 minutes. And plus, he's funny. He tells jokes. That's God's message for that people. God's message for this people happens right here. Sunday mornings, Wednesday nights. If you're part of this people, you're on this journey, you need it. Man, go on a trip. Travel. Knock yourself out. Take your family. Band. Be all about that. Be sick. It's okay to be sick. 
But God's got a message for you. He's leading us on a life-giving journey. This word is the good news that was preached to you. Man, it matters. I have folks sometimes say, man, I, I need to talk to you. And I try and make myself available for kind of the more chaplain sort of our pastoral um, counseling sort of ministries. Man, I need to talk to you. But I hadn't seen them there in weeks on Sunday mornings. I'm like, man, <laughs> that's, that's the best I got. <laughs> I got nothing for you. I'll chit-chat with you. We can talk about hunting, fishing, bowling. <laughs> we talk about all that stuff. We can talk about your hair, your shoes. That's the best I got on Sunday morning. I got nothing to chat with you about. Do I care about you? I want to be your friend? Sure. But if you're not going to engage the living, the, the word that is expressed through the preaching, the life-giving word, I don't know what to tell you. It's that important. Now, as you're hearing these things this morning about elders, about this lowercase mediator, I hope what you see in these guys, I hope what you see in me, what you see in these other three guys that are leading Crosspoint with me as peers. I'm not a lead elder. We're teammates. I hope you're seeing guys that have a lot of the character of Moses. <laughs> this kind of like, oh, God, if you can kind of find somebody else to do it, that would be helpful because <laughs> I'm sure I want to be agonizomai. Or gumnazo, or copiazzo. That sounds hard. Hopefully, that's the character. Not a, okay, I don't want to do it, but a, ooh, recognizing the gravity of it. Recognizing the difficulty of it. Hopefully, there's some fear and trembling in these men with care over your souls. And hopefully you're seeing a word invade their lives. You're seeing an authenticity where, dude, this guy's the same dude he is this morning as he is on Thursday at his house over lunch. A genuine journey that even shows our wrinkles, but shows this sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in the school of grace that we're all on. Hopefully that qualifies and characterizes, or characterizes, not qualifies, characterizes our ministry. Hopefully the ministry of the elders is a little bit like Christ who said, can you take this cup from me? But not my will, but yours. I'll go not so for you. This is not a reactive message. We're not, we're not facing problems right now. It's preparation for next week. I really, I know how uncool this is for the world. This sort of message. I know it, man. The world hears things like this and they're saying, dude, following's not cool. <laughs> Are you crazy? Following's not cool. Submission is for weaklings. Obedience is for pushovers. I think you're a little bit too serious about this church thing. And who are those jokers, those elders? They don't even work. That's what the world is saying. The world says yuck to that design. But the beauty is some will say, oh, there's wisdom in that. Some will travel to see that. Let's go to one more passage. 1 Kings chapter 8. 
This is God's design. And man, it's so otherworldly that the world says, yuck. But God's design has an impact on some. Listen to this. It's on page 289. Solomon has built the temple and he's offering a prayer of dedication for this magnificent temple that he's built. And in verse 21, listen to these words that are part of his prayer and part of his dedication. He says, Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people, just also see Solomon as a lowercase mediator in this case. A lowercase mediator who's going to administer wisdom, judgment, leadership. See him as kind of an Old Testament elder. And then hear these words. He's dedicating the temple. He says, when a foreigner who's not of your people, Israel, God, when he comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm. When this foreigner comes and he prays toward this house, hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls you. In order that, listen, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel. There's evangelism in this thing. Listen. And that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. Look over at chapter 9. As soon as Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all that Solomon desired to build. Oh, excuse me, start in chapter 10, verse 1. Solomon's built a temple. He's dedicated it. Remember that part of his prayer of dedication? That all the nations will see your wisdom. That they'll be blessed in your design. And listen to what happens in chapter 10. Now when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord. Sheba was thought to be current day Ethiopia. It's about 1,500 miles away across the desert. This queen hears about Solomon, this lowercase m mediator, and the wisdom that he's administering, and the Davidic covenant that he's walking in. And she's like, oh man, that's something else. I got to hear that. I got to see that. So she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue, with camels bearing spices, and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all her questions. Wisdom. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, and his burnt offering that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. (sighs) She's breathless over his wisdom. (laughs) But that's not all she's breathless over. Listen to what else happened. And she said to the king, this lowercase mediator, this kind of Old Testament elder. The report was true that I heard of my own land, of your words and of your wisdom, but I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half wasn't told to me. It's better than I heard. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. And here's the key. Blessed be the Lord your God. 
this pagan queen travels 1,500 miles over the desert to see God's design and God's wisdom in action. And what does she do when she gets there and she sees it? She says, blessed be the Lord your God. She praises the Lord who's delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. He's made you king, lowercase mediator, that you may execute justice and righteousness. Some will travel to see God's design and God's wisdom. God's wisdom and design is on display in this picture of lowercase mediators administering his sweet sublime covenant if it can draw a queen over 1500 miles of desert then it can draw people from lone oak it can draw people from quinlan from Roy, yeah even quinlan <laughs> i have great affection for quinlan roy city caddo mills commerce the wisdom of god on display can draw people from the north side of greenville consider the contrast the church that's poorly led the church that's not feasting and gnawing on the word that's just kind of busy consider the church that where people are not following the leadership of the god-ordained leadership where they're not following nobody's going to travel for that that's an eyesore. That's not something that is appealing. Nobody's going to cross the desert to see that. That's a mockery. But a people that come into line with God's sweet design of rich, sublime, final covenant in the person and work of Jesus Christ, mediated at the gentle, servant, caring soft but true hands of God's ordained leadership, Christ-adoring men, and following well, I'm going to say that's a sweet aroma. I'm going to say that's salt. That's bright. That's evangelism. Is that crazy or what? I thought evangelism was something that you went and did. It's following. It's coming into alignment with God's design. It's evangelism at its best. Where we're going next week is we're going to consider the family. You will then appreciate what we've done this morning. Because I promise you, you'll recognize the furniture. You'll recognize the dimensions of the room we're going to Ephesians 5. I encourage you. I'm telling you where we're going so you can read ahead. It's going to be challenging. We're going to Ephesians 5. Read ahead where it starts talking about wives and husbands. Kind of toward the end of the chapter in chapter 5. Read it. Feast on it. Make notes about it. Ask questions. Have the questions ready. We won't talk about them in here, but man, the elders are standing by. Get ready. Because there will be questions. Read ahead and prepare for it. You'll understand what we've done here in seeing these lowercase mediators administering a covenant. And you'll see that next week.
in the home. I appreciate your attentiveness this morning. What we did here last week and this week, it's identity developing. It's activity crushing. Isn't it? (laughs) Man, how could church be an activity in light of that? You all over the Bible, verse after verse after verse after verse. It's not opinion. There's authority in that exposure of that word. That's identity building. Because we're not people that go about something. We are a people that are something. Let me pray. Lord, I pray that right now as people are kind of digesting what they've heard and as they gone in, go on into the day and into the week, trying to kind of chew on some of what we've talked about this morning and what you've shown us. Lord, I pray that even though it's been presented, I know, forcefully and strongly, I pray that people will see a sweet gentleness in it. A sweet shepherding care in your design. I pray that proud hearts will be softened and teachable. And the proud men will have a lower view of themselves and will submit to your design and your leadership. Lord, I pray for what's kind of been the focus of this morning's message for me and these other elders. Lord, I pray that you will guard our hearts. Lord, I pray that you will bend our knees, that we will be growing downward in humility and growing upward in worship and wonder. Lord, I pray that we will be men that are about the gunazo, the agonizomai, the kopiazo, about the things that matter because we have a sweet stewardship over these souls. Lord, I pray too that this body will pray for the elders. I pray that you'll give us a wisdom that's beyond any one of us so that you are glorified and enjoyed in the way your wisdom and your covenant is administered in this people. Lord, I pray too that you're preparing families to hear where we're going next Sunday. I pray that you're preparing wives to engage the challenging truths at the end of chapter 5 and that you're preparing men to die for their wives. Lord, build in us an identity. We love you, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's worship in song.